All right, this morning we are continuing on with this series of messages about why we do what we do here in church when we are together. And today, another one of those topics that I will say right up front, we can't tackle this all in one day. I know we can't. So here's, here's the disclaimer right at the beginning. There will be things left unsaid, right? You, you can nail me on that later. Of, but what about this and what about that when we talk about how to read the Bible? I'm not even going to try to cover it all today because that wouldn't be very helpful. You'd leave here more confused and overwhelmed than it would be of help. So let's just work with something that maybe can help us take one step in the, in the right direction. One step closer to how it is that we read the Bible and what that means for us. Today I'm going to look at a passage of scripture that comes from 2 Timothy, letter in the New Testament, written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy. Timothy, one of his young apprentices, protégés, someone he was training to be a pastor, living in Ephesus at the time, so leading the church in Ephesus, Timothy then. This is what Paul writes to Timothy about Scripture, the Word. He says this, 2 Timothy, I'm starting at verse 14 of chapter 3. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know, the, you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing to his, in his, and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How to read the Bible, how to read Scripture, what, what Scripture means for us and what it is that we do with Scripture and how we take it. Well, you know, I, I have to admit that starting with a passage like this, that this is a passage that sort of frames something of that for us, that sort of tells us something about how to read the Bible and what that means. But, but we all sort of bring something different into that because we all have different ideas. Somewhere down inside, we all have different ideas about what the Bible is and how the Bible should be read. I remember one of the times when, uh, in the years that I worked as a hospital chaplain, I would go into call on patients from all kinds of different backgrounds. And one of those patients that I called in on uh, was open and receptive to a word of scripture. But, you know, since this was, this was Bronson Hospital in Kalamazoo, a hospital that had more than one building, so it's a lot of walking around. I didn't carry an actual Bible around with me, right? It was sort of pull the phone out of the pocket and pull one up. So there was an opportunity when I had to share scripture with someone who invited that, and, I pull, and, he's, and the guy stops me. Wait, hold on. No, not like that. Unless it is leather-bound, 
gold trim and King James, don't even try. Right? Go do that. So go, yeah, in the pastoral office there, yep, go find that and go back. But there's something revealing in that about, but this is what the Bible is or should be or how it should be read. And I think maybe, okay, maybe we don't all go to extremes like that. But we all have something inside, don't we? Something about some idea about what the Bible is or should be or how it should be read. We all bring something into that in some way. So how do we do that? How do we read the Bible and take it on that way? You look at a passage like this that comes from Timothy today, and and we bring some things into that as well as pull some things out of it, don't we? A passage like this is something that when I read that, right, when when I read a passage like that and say, yep, all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. Now, Tell me if this isn't true, because, because I, will, I will admit this is where my mind goes first. I can think of people that need that. Yeah, you know what? I've got a list of people in my head right now that I know could use some rebuking and correcting by Scripture. I know some people who aren't walking in line with what Scripture says, and yes, The teaching of Scripture, the correcting of Scripture, the rebuking of Scripture could be useful in their lives. But tell me if that's not true, that sometimes, perhaps many times, perhaps all the time, when we hear that, we think of other people first. I've got a list. I know those people. But then it's somewhere maybe down the line, or maybe never at all, that it comes back around to asking the question, am I the one who needs correcting? Am I the one who needs rebuking? Am I the one who needs to be turned around by this? Isn't that true? Isn't that true for so many of us that when we hear those words and think of Scripture that way, that, that the first place our mind goes is the other people who need to hear that because they are not living in the truth. And then somewhere later, or maybe never, comes back around to, but what do I need to hear? Because of the ways that maybe I'm not living in the truth. That makes a difference. It makes a difference for how you read the Bible, doesn't it? Depending on how you react that way. It makes a difference for how you use the Bible or see the Bible. Because sometimes, if, if, if the first mode is always what other people need to hear and how other people need to be corrected, then the Bible is, well, it's kind of like a sledgehammer then, isn't it? It's one of those things I could use to whack other people over the head. The church that I grew up in had one of those giant pulpits with a huge hardcover Bible on it. And, you know, I sometimes used to think, is is that what that is for, that the minister would take that and that would be the giant brick to whack people over the head. But depending on how you see Scripture makes a difference for that, doesn't it? That sometimes we pull into that kind of thinking where God's Word Maybe without intending for it to be that way, God's word is something that we use as a sledgehammer to knock other people. When in fact, perhaps in a passage like this, 
It's not meant to be a sledgehammer, but a mirror. A mirror that we hold up so that we can see our own reflection a little bit better. So that we can understand ourselves maybe a little bit better. How God may be correcting our own lives. I think that's what the Apostle Paul was after in this passage. Let me put one of those verses back up there again, and I'll highlight a few words so that you can see exactly where this goes. This is what the Apostle Paul says to Timothy about that. right? And, and these are second-person singular pronouns. It's not the you, plural, all of it. He's talking right to Timothy. right? That's how he sets it up. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those, you know those from who you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You see what Paul is getting after here. He's telling Timothy, yep, Timothy, this is my charge for you. I want you to preach this, right? That's your job to preach this, but you know what? There's something that comes first. You've got no business preaching this to others unless the first thing you do is hold this up against yourself. That this is, first of all, a mirror back to your own heart, back to your own life, back to your own soul. That this is the place where, first of all, you need to consider through Scripture, how is God placing me on his potter's wheel to form, mold, shape my own heart, my own life through these words of Scripture, that I need to do that part first before bringing the Bible out for instruction for others. That we have no business using Scripture to rebuke or correct anyone else until we first take the time to honestly, intently examine where Scripture may be rebuking, correcting us, ourselves, my own heart, my own soul, my own life. I think Paul brings this message to Timothy in that way, right? He's telling Timothy, hey, you first. You first. And I think maybe Paul's admitting something of his own life there too, of because that's how it works for me that I have to do that too. That something has to come through God's word for our own lives first before we start seeing it apply to others. So how do we do that? How do we take this word of scripture and bring it forward that way? You know, I've like I say, I, I can't cover all this, and I'm not even going to try. But I am going to give you a resource, all right? So if you are interested in this, this is a book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And the title says it all. The author's names are Gordon Fee and Doug Stewart. This is a book that, it was published in 1982, so it's, yeah, going on 40 years old now. But it's in its fourth edition of printing. So even though it's been around that long, it still is in print and going which tells me something. It tells me, you know what, there's something lasting and enduring that has stood the test of time there. So I'm, I'm going to bounce on maybe just 
one or two things that can help us apply this, but if this, if this is something where you want to go further into it because there's so much I'm not talking about with the Bible, this would be the resource that I would say, you know what, go here. It's, it's pretty easy to read. Anyone can pick this up and do that. How to read the Bible for all it's worth, and I'm just going to bounce on one or two things out of that, but further you can go with it. So, how do we read the Bible? How do we make sense of that in ways where I hold it up as a mirror to my own life first to find correcting and rebuking where I need to find that? How do I understand that? Well, you know, first of all, the Bible. The Bible itself, we talk about it as though it's a book, but it's not, is it? It's not a book. It's a collection of books, many books. It's a library that comes together that way. And it has all of these different kinds of literature inside of it that span over a thousand years from the time of when Genesis was written to when Revelation was written, that it's spread out that way. It comes to us like that. So how do we make sense of that kind of a writing? All of these different documents that are coming and piecing together in ways that all seem to have their own different style and their own, and their own way of writing, but all work towards one message. How do we understand that? Well, well, we understand that because we acknowledge that within the church that Bible is inspired, inspired by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, or, or as the passage we read today puts it, God breathed. It's the only place in the Greek New Testament that you find that particular phrase. God breathed. What does that mean? What does it mean that the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit? That there were people throughout history then that God, through his Holy Spirit, gave this message for them to write down and preserve. That God, through his Holy Spirit, preserved that message through centuries of hand copying. They didn't have Xerox machines back then, right? That God, through his Holy Spirit, still works through our hearts today as we read it and hear it to know and to understand its message. That all of these things are a part of God working in his inspiration. What does that mean when we say that? Well, in our church here, in the Christian Reformed Church, we would say the Bible, it means that the Bible is infallible. Infallible. But here's what we don't say in this church. We don't say that the Bible is inerrant. I know that there are many other people who would say that. And maybe, maybe in your own mind you think, but that's the same thing, right? I mean, the Bible is infallible and inerrant, and I'm just saying the same thing twice over because those mean the same thing, don't they? Well, I'm going to split hairs here and talk about the difference between that. And I'm going to talk about that because it makes a difference for how you read it depending on how you think of that. The Bible is infallible, but it's not inerrant. Inerrancy means that the Bible has no errors, that there are no errors inside of it. We wouldn't say that. Here's the reason we wouldn't say that, because, well, I mean, first of all, look at examples, say, from the Gospels. Four Gospels, but you know what? Some of those details don't line up, do they? There's discrepancies there. There's things that that don't exactly line up the way from one gospel to the next. You can also find discrepancies like that between First and Second Chronicles and First and Second Kings, which talk about the same period of history. But 
the details aren't all together lined up on that kind of a thing. So, so which one is right? Which detail is right? It goes further than that, though, because the Bible as we have it, maybe, maybe we sort of have this idea in mind that the Bible came down from Mount Sinai with Moses, right? That there it was all together. But the history of the Bible is a bit different. You know, the Bible that we have today is a Bible that has been around for about 500 years. Because for the 1,500 years before that, there were more books in it. More books that, along the way of the Protestant Reformation, the Protestant Reformers picked some and said, you know, this one's out, this one's out, this one's out. They pulled some out. Books which had been a part of the Bible longer than what they've not. So how do they do that? How do they decide that? What are those choices made? Maybe you've read some of those books that are in what we call the Apocrypha, right? Esdras, Maccabees, Tobit, one of my favorites, Suzanne and the Dragon. Books that we don't know about, but for most of the history of the Bible, they were part of the Bible, and now they're not. Martin Luther, if he had his way, would have pulled James out of the Bible. He didn't like James, but it stayed. Also, there was the argument that Hebrews doesn't belong in the Bible, but we kept Hebrews in. All of these questions about there about how the Bible came to be and where it came together and who made those choices. You see, it has to do with the history of the Bible of piecing this together that there are no original manuscripts, right? There is not a scroll somewhere in the world that has 2 Timothy, original by Paul, signed by his name at the bottom. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist for any of the books of the Bible. They're all copies. And those copies that they found are not complete. They're fragments. They're pieces. And as those things were copied over and over again throughout hundreds or over a thousand years, you know, you ever play that game, that game where you sit in a circle and then you whisper something to the person next to you and they whisper it to the next and it goes around and how whatever that phrase is, changes by the time it gets to the end. That's what these manuscripts are like. They don't all line up. They don't all agree. They say different things. Biblical scholars have had to make the choice, well, which one is right? And how do you know that there may be errors in that? That's just one thing. The next thing comes with translation. For any of you here who are bilingual, know more than one language, then you know, you understand that, you know what, there are some words that you simply cannot find a good word for in another language. It doesn't translate. The Bible has that too. There are Greek and Hebrew words that simply don't have English translations. And somewhere along the line, translators just had to make a choice. Well, what do we do? How do we say it? How does it go? To say that the Bible is free from all errors doesn't work because there's so many fragments that have discrepancies. There's so many translation issues that don't have good translations. So I'm a little puzzled by people who who prefer to read the Bible literally because there is no such thing as a literal Bible. There's no manuscript back there where this is exactly how it was written by the original author doesn't exist. So we don't say the Bible is inerrant. There are probably more errors in the Bible than we know about or care to admit. But here's what we do say. We say the Bible is infallible, and that's different. 
Infallible means that the Bible cannot fail in its message, in its purpose, in its intent. That the reason for which God inspired these authors to write these things down conveyed a message, and the message that is contained within those words is something that cannot fail. There may be discrepancies and errors in the actual words and copies along the way, but the message is contained within that and has remained contained within that. Maybe you think that's a nitpicky detail, but I would tell you that makes a difference. It makes a difference for how you read the Bible, doesn't it? It makes a difference when when I'm able to say, you know what, I'm not going to get too hung up on details that maybe don't matter, especially when it comes to missing the point of the message within those words, that the message is what remains and is what carried through. So we talk about the Bible that way, that there is a message, a message of God's revelation there of his story, a message of God's mercy and forgiveness and grace, a message of God's covenant promise to his people throughout all of history that he would be their God and we would be his people, a message of God's redemption of how he came to save a lost, broken, and sinful world. That the message of that is contained within Scripture and remains within Scripture without fail. That's what we see in the Bible, that we look for that message. And it comes to us through all of these different books in all of these different ways that we pull that message out. When you think about that in Scripture, all the different ways that Scripture has to say that, right? Not a book, many books. And not just many books, but many styles, right? Historical narrative, poetry, wisdom, prophecy, oracles, letters, gospels, parables, apocalyptic allegories. All of these different styles all pointing towards this one message. And we read it differently that way when we look for that message and remember that. But that's not to say that It's always that simple then, is it? Because all those styles read differently, don't they? I mean, we we approach those differently. Maybe that's something we forget to do. Maybe sometimes we forget when we open a Bible to remember all the different styles that are there that, that maybe the first thing we should ask is, all right, so I'm reading something from Scripture. What am I reading? Who wrote it? Who was it written to? What was the issue surrounding the writing of this particular book? Right? I gave a little passing mention to that in the passage we read today. 2 Timothy, it was written by the Apostle Paul. It was to Timothy. Timothy is one of his protege apprentices being trained. Timothy probably lived in Ephesus, so surrounding that, the church in Ephesus and all the issues going on there. All of that is sort of background information that helps us find the message that pulls through that in Scripture, that we ask those questions about it. And those are good questions to ask because we read different things in different ways. Think of it like a newspaper, right? That, that when you open a newspaper, you bring in a whole set of preconceived ideas depending on what part of the newspaper you're reading, right? If I open the newspaper and I pull out the comics, what's the thought that I have in mind when I'm reading the comics? I'm looking at that with the intention of this is supposed to make me laugh. 
There's supposed to be something funny in here, right? I've got a framework in my head right from the beginning based on what it is I'm reading. And it applies to comics, but you know, when you turn the page and it's the obituaries, now it's different. I don't read the obituaries thinking, this is here to make me laugh. That's not what the obituaries are about. See, different ways we see that in what we're reading gives us a whole thing in mind of how we're supposed to read it. And, you know, we, we see that in Scripture, too. We read poetry different than we read the historical narrative. We read these letters from Paul different than we read prophecies of the Old Testament. All of those things shuffle through. But they all point to a place where we say, but there's a message, a message that comes through that. So how do we find that? How do we make sense of that? So many things that we could say about that, but I want this to be helpful today, not overwhelming. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give two questions. Two questions that, you know, whatever part of Scripture you're reading, whatever passage you're reading, bring these two questions to that passage as a way to help uncover what's the message, right? But what's the meaning that's pulled through that? Sometimes it's easier to do than others, but this is a helpful way. Two questions. The first question is this. The first question I would ask is, how does the passage point to a problem of sinful brokenness in our world? Whatever passage I'm reading, right, whether it's historical narrative or poetry or wisdom or letters or gospel, whatever that piece of scripture is, ask the question in it, is there something in this passage that points to a problem? of sinful brokenness in our world. It's what Paul Scott Wilson in his book calls trouble in the text. That somewhere within any text of Scripture, there's something that points out trouble, suffering, dilemma, problem, brokenness, sin, strife. However you see that, when you look at a passage of Scripture, ask that question first. Where's the problem in this. All right? You know what? Let's workshop this so that we can make sense of it. We're going to practice. So, um, pop quiz, right? Yeah, I know. You didn't come to church thinking there'd be a quiz, right? In your bulletin, you have the whole passage written out there, right? Everything that I read today. Let's work with that one. The passage that I read today, 2 Timothy, the end of chapter 3, the first of chapter 4. Look at that. Where's the problem? Where in that passage that I read today do you see some kind of nod towards sin, brokenness, trouble, problem in our world? Can you find it there? Do you see where it is? I'll reveal the answer. I'll put it up on the screen there. It comes at the end, chapter 4, right? Look at those words. The time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They turn away from truth and aside to miss. Something in the passage of Scripture which first of all points to, you know what, there's a problem here. That we live in a world of sin and brokenness and In this particular passage of Scripture, here's how that is brought up and expressed. Here's one of those effects of sinful brokenness. That we are people who try to suit our own desires. We are people who turn away to people that tell us only what we want to hear. 
that we are people who are inclined to turn away from the truth. You see how that works? That when we read a piece of scripture and we ask that question first, all right, look through the passage. Where is there a problem here? Where does something come up that way? That's the first question, okay? Now, the second question. The second question comes with the, with the idea of God showing up. How does God show up? Right? The first problem, where's the problem? Or the first question, where's the problem? Where's the problem of sin? The second question for the passage, so how does God show up? What does God do? What, what is the action of God? What is God up to in this passage? Sometimes that's pretty easy to see because God actively shows up and the Bible tells us what it is. Sometimes it's implied what happens. Sometimes it's a nod to something that maybe God already did in the past. Maybe sometimes it's a nod to something God will do in the future. But always within Scripture, whatever we're reading, we ask that question. First of all, what's the problem here? Right? Where, where is the sin? Where have we gone wrong? And then, what does God do about it? How does God show up? How does God fix that? How does God address that? What does he do? All right? Yep, second part of your quiz now then. So, that same passage that we looked at, the one that we looked at this morning. So if the problem that we looked at, the trouble in that passage that we looked at, is that we are people who turn away from the truth to suit our own desires, now then, in this passage that we read this morning, if you're looking at that, Where does God show up? What does God do about that? Where is God active in this particular passage, in what's happening here? How does that work? Look at that. What do you think? I'm not going to execute a hand in papers to grade, but maybe I should? No? All right. How does God show up? I would say God shows up in these words. That all scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's a passive verb, so you don't see the action come out there, but let me rephrase that. Let me rephrase that in a way that maybe shows it as active. Rather than being equipped, let's say it this way, that God is thoroughly equipping his servants for every good work through Scripture. That's what that last verse was saying. That God shows up in the passage this way. God shows up to thoroughly equip his servants for every good work. And in this particular passage, in this passage we read, he does that through Scripture. Right? That all Scripture is God breathed because God is the one who's equipping his people through those words. That he's building up his people through those words. That scripture is used by God to mold, shape, form, redeem his people for every good work. What might those good works be? You know what, in this particular passage we didn't Read that in particular. But, but this is where scripture is helpful, isn't it? You don't have to back out too far to know that Paul didn't need to name that for Timothy. He already has. If you read 2 Timothy as a whole, go back to 1 Timothy. As I mentioned, 
Timothy was in Ephesus so that he would have also known the letter of Ephesians as coming there. Well, Ephesians chapter 4 has something to say about being equipped for good works as well, right? That God builds up his church to be united together so that we may attain the full measure of Christ from Ephesians 4. That scripture helps us in that, to see the message, to connect the dots, to see what God is up to in those words. That there is a message there, a message of God coming to a broken world to redeem, to recreate, to make new again. And it comes to us. Isn't it amazing how Scripture does this for us in our lives? And it is, isn't it amazing how these books that were written over a span of over a thousand years and over two thousand years ago have endured and stayed with us and kept with us and that the message that's within that still remains for our world today. That we still see God at work. That he's still using these ancient documents to form and mold and shape his people to be redeemed in his image so that we may do what he's called us to do, equipped by his word. So this week, this week when you have opportunity, opportunity to read scripture, I'd invite you to do that. Ask those two questions. When you read a passage of scripture, look at what's there. Where's the problem? Where's the trouble? Where does sin show up in that where I can see a reflection of that struggle in my own life? And how does God show up to do something about that? To bring his redemption. To show us his grace. To make us new. God's word is full of that. Find opportunity to do that this week. Maybe in your own devotions that you do by yourself. Maybe in reading that you do with other people in a group setting. Maybe in a small group that you're part of. Maybe in a reading plan. We have so many opportunities to do that. If you are looking for a place to start, right? If you're saying, you know what, but I don't even know where to begin with that. I'm going to give you just one tip then, all right? So if you need a step one, in our prayer email that we send out every day here, Monday through Friday, We always have a verse of the day there. That there's always a verse that we share that you can get in your inbox. If you you even want to step beyond that, it's every Tuesday, every Tuesday when we send out our prayer email, we send a link to something called the lectionary. That within the Christian tradition, there is a a set of scriptures that the church reads together. And every week, it's a different set called the lectionary. Places where we go to in scripture to see God revealed that point out how we are broken people who need a savior and how God shows up to bring us his grace and his redemption. Find opportunities to do that this week. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that within your word that you reveal how you are the one who comes to make us new to redeem us. Lord, and we pray that as we pick up scripture and read that, that you would show us again how it is something that is not a sledgehammer for us to clobber other people, but may we see that as a mirror which holds up against our own lives so that you may use these words to mold us, shape us, 
to make us new, that we may be reminded in what we read of how we are broken people, but you have made us whole again. Lord, thanks for showing up, for being active, for making us your people, and for going with us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.